Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Muhammad Ali, Vice President with Crestview Strategies, is going to join us to explain how Trudeau's pitch man is outplaying America one deal at a time. Hey, why doesn't Canada consider America's far right as foreign interference when they're operating here as well? And Rolling Stone has released a list of the 50 greatest Canadian artists of all time. And some people, including me, are not at all happy with it. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, there's a lot of uh, moving and shaking going on in Ottawa these days, of course, about a number of deals that have been made uh, with EVs and a number of other industries uh, in uh, medical technology and, of course, also to do with uh, what's happening with alternative uh, energy sources. And uh, there's one guy that seems to be at the center of an awful lot of those stories, uh, and he is uh, the industry minister for this government. He is uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne. Uh, that many people are now calling the the prime minister's pitch man uh, because of the work that he's doing. There's a couple of uh, rather interesting in-depth pieces have been uh, written about the minister over the last little while. So what's what's going on here? Is this a a political star uh, in the who's rising above others right now, or is just being in the right place at the right time? Uh, next guest can offer some insight into that. He is Muhammad Ali, who is the vice president for Crestview Strategies. And Muhammad, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Talk to us a little bit about uh, Minister Champagne, who's, uh, as I say, certainly in the high, in the highlight reels these days with some of the, the good news announcements that this government has made right now. Um, industry portfolio that he's, of course, in charge of uh, is such a key part of economic recovery after the economic downturns we have and some rather gloomy forecasts right now. How does this guy come out looking like a shining light when there seems to be so much negativity these days? Well, Minister Champagne, I think, uh, has a number of nicknames that, but I think the one that for me that encapsulates his his style and his drive is called the Energizer Bunny because <clears throat> he is relentless uh, in his pursuit for getting new investment into Canada, and I think all credit where is due is is need to give to him is he does cold calling, he'll talk to C suite executives, he will do everything he can to convince. You know, corporate executives and companies to invest in Canada. It's where he got the Volkswagen announcement. He got Moderna and others where uh, they weren't necessarily looking at Canada very seriously until they got an understanding and, and knew who the other side was that are negotiating with, which was uh, Mr. Champagne. And, and so his ability to understand business, communicate with business and uh, build and sort of Build an understanding for businesses to understand what the value of coming to Canada means and what are some of the pieces that maybe they perhaps are overlooking. Because I think it's very easy to under, to think about, oh, yeah, great to invest in the U.S., great to invest in certain parts of the EU, China, India. But, you know, Canada has a lot to offer and and he really, you know, ensures that our voice is, is you know, has a space in that sort of race for investments around the world, whether EVs, critical minerals, uh, biomanufacturing and others like the, he has been a, a relentless uh, energizer bunny throughout this entire uh, entire time of him being minister of industry. How important is it though for a leader, prime minister in this case, uh, to put the right person in the right job? And and I, I can imagine, I can't imagine, I guess, how difficult it is to actually put a cabinet together because you you know you've got political considerations at the same time you want to look at people's talents. 
Uh, and to that point, I mean, since the Liberals have been back in power since 2015, uh, Champagne's held a couple of different posts here. He was foreign affairs minister, and I didn't really distinguish himself. I don't think he made it, uh, some mistakes of any major consequence. But it just seems that when they put him in charge of industry right now, that, that was his wheelhouse. It is his wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely his wheelhouse. I think he didn't, I mean, first he started in minister, he was in international trade, um, and he had to deal with uh, CPTPP with the, you know, a number of uh, uh, countries in the Pacific Ocean area to secure that very large trade agreement, uh, which is, a, you know, a tough go for any rookie minister who's sort of getting their feet wet. And then foreign affairs, which is a very tough portfolio, and 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 in both situations, those are, those are tough tough challenges. But you know, he has always been an industry executive. Uh, you know, corporate law, travel the world, uh, worked in Europe and other places. So him understanding the language of business, but understanding how government can de-risk an investment for them to come to Canada, or what are other challenges they're facing? What is a board thinking about? You know, these are all uh, tools or or experiences that help him uh, maximize his value uh, as a minister of industry. And so him finding his comfort in, in this portfolio uh, makes a lot of sense because of his experience and what he's done with, with uh, a lot of these sort of large multinational businesses that are all looking at where to put their next major investment in. And so... Um, that ability to communicate, uh, you know, you don't have to be a specific sectoral expertise, but if you understand, you know, sort of how sort of business decision making is made, uh, it helps helps sort of fill a lot of gaps that perhaps other politicians may face greater hurdles. He's, uh, as you mentioned, a talented guy. I mean, well-educated, of course, in the States. And he's spent a lot of time in Europe in the business world. And, and as you mentioned, in the Far East as well. That, that's got to be helpful. In other words, he, he knows those areas and they know him. Yeah. And, and look, he, he, like any uh, minister that uh, has a, a major portfolio, uh, has to manage, obviously, the priorities of you know, in Canada and how to protect Canadian investment and maintain that as well, right? Like there's also like attracting, but also defending. And he is, his ability to have also redefined what is prospects and opportunities in Canada has been tremendous. You know, you don't get these sort of opportunities, you know, to, to your off, you know, your comment on off the top about is this, uh, is this the right time, right place for someone where there's also there a political element to it? I think it's both because the country is trying to decarbonize and trying to build a sustainable economy, which is one that is enshrined in what where the demand is going, where are customers thinking, where where is the climate change initiatives going and, and whatnot. And then also, you know, we're in this unique part where there's a lot of... In, changed uh, industrialization policy taking place and a new focus on mining and EVs and batteries that we have not seen in, in, in ever really, but particularly for mining and for automotive, there hasn't been this sort of race that the Western, Western countries are now much more competitive to bring that in. So, you know, the right place, right time. And he is, I think the right guy at the right place to be the salesman that can really punch above his weight and punch above Canada's weight uh, to track that that type of investments that we are seeing right now, and and I suspect we'll probably have a few more coming along the way shortly. 
there always, maybe not always, but a lot of the time anyway, seems to be somebody that kind of rises to the occasion uh, and becomes, you know, I, I guess the kind of go-to person in the cabinet. I, I've, when this, this government started uh, back in 2015, obviously that was going to be Christia Freeland, the finance minister, deputy prime minister, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and she's had her ups and downs. I mean, performed pretty well on the job, all things considered. Uh, John Barrett, I think, was that guy for Stephen Harper. I mean, you know, he came from Ontario politics and moved in there and pretty much became the, you know, okay, uh, you're going to do this portfolio. I got a problem with the environment. You're going to do this, then foreign affairs. And and he performed well in each and every one of them. And it, it, it's almost like you've got to have that one individual in cabinet that, that can be that flexible. And, and Baird certainly was for Harper. And it looks as if Champagne is the guy for the prime minister. I think this, uh, you know, there are different personalities that have to fit in certain portfolios and roles within a cabinet. And and yeah, it is difficult to build a cabinet and, and you're going to have some hits and misses. Uh, you know, I think of all three portfolios for Minister Champagne, he, I think everyone can all agree that this has been his most successful one uh, to date and, and where he's been most effective. I think he's had a couple of stumbling blocks and other ones, but, you know, he has just done a tremendous job. And, and to in fairness to some of the other cabinet ministers, as Minister Wilkinson and Natural Resources, Freeland and Finance and Foreign Affairs, uh, there are a number of, of strong players that are able to do the job necessary when given a certain portfolio. And I think uh, for, for this prime minister, for Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, him having someone that can really be a go-getter and can ensure that we have been given our fair shake with pulling and competing for investment into this country, creating jobs and such. That's a very helpful uh, tool and tool shed to have, that you have someone in your cabinet that is capable of doing that and does not need, you know, a lot of direction. Like they can, they can make the calls, they can do what they need to do to, to position. And you know that even if we are to miss out on, on, uh, competing for an investment, that, but we know we put our best foot forward on that. All right, you've uh, been doing this for a long time, and let's let's just uh, gaze into the political crystal ball if we could for just a second, Mohammed, and give me your your, your best assessment on this. Uh, is this guy leadership material? I mean, you know, the, the stories are out there that the, the prime minister may be thinking about stepping down. I don't think that's true. I think he's probably going to lead them into another election anyway. I don't know what's going to happen beyond that. But the question then is, well, if he does step down, who takes over? Is, is, is a guy like Champagne a prime candidate? I think Champagne is well position, positioning himself amongst a certain segment of liberals who are more in the, say, Cretchen sort of world, where uh, a little bit more on the pro-business side, centrist. And he has self-professed this as himself, that he's a, a staunch centrist and believes that the party uh, is most natural there. And ultimately, I mean, even in political parties, I mean, ultimately, you can have all the public support, but you need to actually at the end of the day win the win over members to determine how if who becomes leader. But he's definitely positioned himself well as leadership material for the future. Um, and he obviously has a, a strong uh, mentor and a former prime minister named Jean Chrétien. And so they're, they're from the same hometown. Not to be not to be overlooked, uh, definitely amongst other potential contenders for the top job. Yeah, it, it, the fact that they come from the same town, obviously different generations, but uh, that's that's rather fascinating too. Uh, but does he represent uh, the move uh, that we hear about from an awful lot of liberals right now? That uh, that maybe they're a little uncomfortable with how far left the uh, the prime minister has moved the Liberal Party right now. 
uh, you know, trying to out NDP the NDP in some of these situations. That, that would would they like a swing back to the center with a guy like Champagne? Look, they're definitely you know, uh, you know, liberals are a bit of a big tent as well, where they you know have a number of people who fit um, certain alignments within that space of the liberals. So whether they're a, a blue liberal or a little bit more to the left or pure centrist. Uh, there's a space for everyone. And, and this cabinet is very reflective of that too, where you have people sort of all on uh, a bit of every spectrum of the of, of what a liberal means. He obviously appeals to a certain segment of that. Um, and ultimately, you know, obviously this, this government can be painted in certain pictures, but, you know, there's a difference between governing and difference between your sort of focus areas. And, and it's the job of a leader to find that right balance. Uh, you know, may, folks like to accuse the prime minister may not being pro-business. Well, I mean, he has been doing a pretty good job of of helping lead an industrialization of of Canada, uh, and try and you know, it's through him and the minister Champagne of pulling in this investment into this country, pitching Canada, shaping policy, putting the right people in the right places uh, that has positioned Canada as uh, for economic prosperity down you know, for the present and for the future. Uh, so uh, he he will have that, I think, that appeal. But I think what ultimately will come to fruition for, for Minister Champagne is um, how does he want to position all the other pieces that will are, are needed for a leader to demonstrate that, hey, I understand all the nuances of of the membership, right? Like, how do what's more, you know the environmental component, the social component, the business component? Like there's all these other things that I think you know we get I think sometimes caught up in like oh yeah you're great on this one thing so you you should go ahead with it. No, we like it takes any candidate to lead a party uh, to to understand all the nuances and I think someone like Champagne has that capability of really pulling in those different components and I think there's a number of other candidate candidates that can also do that. So whoever, whenever that that day comes of, of a leadership race, I think it will be a very exciting race to say the very least. And, and, and like I say, I, nobody's going to hand this guy the crown. I mean, even if Justin Trudeau announced today, he was stepping down. Uh, I got to figure that some of the people you've been talking about here, Christy Freeland and, and uh, Wilkinson and, and, and a few other high profile members of that cabinet would want a shot at the, at the title too. Uh, so it's not going to come easily, but the, the, I guess what magnifies that the, the problem there is you can't be seen to be campaigning for the job while your boss is still there. I mean, you know, the, the Paul Martin, Jean Chrétien thing that happened uh, really damaged the Liberal Party for a number of years, didn't it? Yeah, it did. I don't, and there's nothing of the Martin Chrétien sort of situation going on here. Uh, and like, yeah, it's a delicate balance, but ultimately for, uh, if any cabinet minister want to take any small piece of advice from me, was that just keep doing a good job in your portfolio because ultimately that's how you'll be judged. Um, do a good job, deliver, uh, and be good to to the the priorities of of this government, and you will sort of get the benefit uh, from that instead of sort of prepositioning yourself. Because ultimately, um, the prime minister has said he is running the next election, and he has a shot at getting reelected again to lead this to lead the country, lead the government. So. Um, you know, those are those are concerns for another day and important to focus on the here and now and making sure you continue to deliver on your portfolios, your mandates. I think that's the most important thing that helps you differentiate yourself from others. 
Well, it's fascinating to watch how this unfolds. And, and we always have to wonder, is this uh, just a, a brief glimpse into this guy's political future? Or is this uh, just, you know, kind of a, a blip? We, we don't know. Uh, time will tell. Always great to get your perspective on this, Mohammed. Thank you so much for this today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Mohammed Ali, Vice President with Crestview Strategies. Uh, who's been involved in political strategy for many, many years. And it's fascinating to see the inner workings here with uh, with government, and uh, especially given some of the concerns and some of the challenges facing the liberals right now, including the fact that they seem to be trailing in the polls right now. They may be looking for a star, uh, somebody that can take some of the positives out of this too. We'll see how this plays out. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the uh, lingering issues, of course, uh, in well, the country, but specifically in Ottawa, of course, uh, is uh, is about some sort of an inquiry into uh, foreign interference in our political systems, and uh, it's it's not yet been settled. The prime minister says he's open to it, and uh, the opposition parties are trying to get some input into this, uh, but nothing settled as of yet. Uh, there was an interesting piece in the uh, the Toronto Star over the weekend, though, by our good friend Susan Delacourt, who's the national columnist, of course, for the Star. In conversation with our next guest, uh, who's been doing an awful lot of work about uh, interference, foreign interference, and uh, the fact that if we're going to do one of these things, and it looks like in some way, shape, or form it is going to happen, uh, we should maybe be expanding uh, the scope of this to include, uh, well, to use a phrase, a clear and present danger uh, that's happening right now within our borders. America's far right is operating here in Canada, and why aren't we considering that to be foreign interference? That's the, uh, the, the the mindset of our next guest, Michael Kempa. Michael, of course, is an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Michael, great to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Uh, I really enjoyed the article that, uh, that Susan uh, wrote uh, after in conversation with you uh, about basically some stuff that you and I have talked about ever since the, the Ottawa insurrection occurred, about exactly where those people were coming from, the influence that they were having, and and their long-term goals. And... and uh, you know, the, the, the fact that, that this is an element of, of, to use that phrase, foreign interference, that I don't know if we don't want to talk about it or if we're afraid to talk about it because we don't want to stir up the hornet's nest, but it doesn't seem to be a focus of, of, of many people's attention in Ottawa, but it is certainly something that needs to be addressed. Well, I think we're a little afraid to talk about it. And also, at the level of concepts, we're not very well equipped to talk about it. We tend to have a very state-centric view of the world. We think that states are absolutely the prime movers, the ones that do good things for us, and the ones that pose the biggest dangers to us. So we think about foreign dangers. We think about China, Russia, Iran, to a certain extent, India, and so forth. But intuitively, we all know we live in a networked world these days. And states are not the only actors out there that have major authority over our lives. There's a lot of private entities that get involved, sometimes in partnership with the state and sometimes doing their own thing. And foreign interference and meddling around in democracy is no different. You have non-state agents of which far-right militias and other far-right organizations, and on the left for that matter, get involved sometimes doing the bidding of states and sometimes do, running their own agendas entirely. But And we've seen examples of this. I know you and I have talked about this in the past, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda, whether it's, uh, you know, Hamas, I mean, you name it. There are organizations, uh, a number of, in Europe too, especially in Spain, these uh, organizations that operate as, as cells. Uh, but that's something that's happening over there. We see it on the news and we're horrified by it. Uh, I don't know if we can get our heads around the fact that, that it could be developing right here in North America as well. 
Well, it is. And not all of it comes from the United States. We have certainly our own amount of homegrown, radical, ideologically motivated, violent people and groups. The issue is they link up with one another transnationally. They exchange ideas. They raise funds. They radicalize. They meet sometimes and increasingly face-to-face and sort of uh, ramp each other up because they see one another in a like-minded community. And all of this is illegal, obviously. Um, Some of it is free speech, protected as it should be. It's awful in many people's point of view, but it's certainly lawful. But in that ecosystem of radical ideas, there are some people who are outright criminals who manipulate this environment. They get onto uh, issues of convenience, causes of convenience to try to drum up money, drum up community support for whatever their projects may be. And then even further beyond criminals, there are a very small number who are actually a threat to state stability. And these are the people that agencies like CSIS are interested in. And they kind of ride abreast the whole ecosystem and take advantage of opportunities to turn up unrest, turn up disinformation, raise money on behalf of their very strange agendas to undermine democracy, sometimes for profit, and sometimes to replace it with a different political system altogether. Well, uh, and you talk about that. You address that in your upcoming book. Uh, I I believe that the title uh, that you've given these people are global misanthropes. Uh, Just they're organized, but they're not organized. That's right. You know, again, we're not talking about a cabal, a sort of secret group of people that are in a coordinated fashion trying to overthrow the world. They're wealthy people all over the planet who invest in disorder uh, for their own reasons. Uh, And sometimes they have an alignment of interests. Sometimes they don't. But they put money into where there's disorder because they have personal interest in drumming up disorder. They can either make money out of it or if they foment enough disorder, creates an opportunity for the expansion of the type of political ideas that they adhere to. It's a relatively small number of people. So, if, you, for example, if you think about the Freedom Convoy, this is not the front-face leadership of the Freedom Convoy. These were sort of people that put together the protest. They had some competing ideas. Some of them are more honorable than others. But people who look at the Freedom Convoy internationally around the globe, they might see an opportunity to send money and drum up disinformation on social media because expanding the disorder of the convoy or other movements creates opportunities for them. Did we see evidence of that as this convoy was moving across the country? I mean, and as you say, I know that every time we have a discussion like this, people start to get defensive about it and say, I was just there because I, I don't, don't like the way this government's acting. You know, there are a lot of different reasons why people went on the convoy and actually ended up in Ottawa. Uh, but, but there are, as you say, some bad actors who see this as an opportunity. Uh, they don't really care what the cause is. They just want to sow, as you say, chaos. Well, that's it. And I mean, we all had friends and neighbors who went down to convoy uh, events. I had people calling me up saying, you know, hey, Mike, I see you on the news. Is it fa- is it safe for me to go down there? Can I check it out? And some days I'd say, yeah, you know, if you want, go down there, check out the periphery. It's not that big a deal. Uh, other days I said, well, you know, there might be some police action. You might not want to bring your, your kids down there today. The point being that we are not painting all of these people with the same brush here. I'm sa- and this is the other thing that comes up. People say, well, CSIS and the RCMP say there were no, was no foreign interference in 
the Freedom Convoy movement. But that's using a very specific definition that applies to CSIS. CSIS is mostly interested in foreign states that would be promoting aspects of the Freedom Convoy. CSIS was very clear that there were all manner of non-state actors that did try to attach to the convoy, some of which came from around the world, uh, to promote that. They just weren't states. So how how do you approach something like this? As you mentioned, there's a hesitancy for us to, to get involved or to it this extent. Uh, made, that may be due in part to, to the fact that we don't want to admit that it's as, a, as, as, as big a threat as it, as it appears to be, but it's a growing threat. Uh, and it seems to be one of these things that's going to continue to grow if it, if, it, if we don't you know start paying attention to it. Well, that's right. I think that we don't have to get carried away, uh, sort of paralyzing ourselves with thinking before we start. It's pretty obvious. What you do is you you take issues. So if you're looking at foreign interference, you don't say, well, what's all the forms? Let's go find all the forms of foreign interference that exist, and what we should do about them. Rather, you say, where do we already know that our system is vulnerable to foreign interference? We know, for example, political nominations are ripe for foreign interference. We know that fundraising in the political system is ripe for interference. We know intimidation is a problem. So you take those issues and you say, how do these networks come together to target nominations, to target financing, target intimidation? So you go in through the window of an issue. And then you simply say, Make a distinction between the awful but lawful, the criminal, and the threats to national security and come up with a strategy for what do we do? We cannot stop people from saying things that we simply don't like. We can educate the public about how to consume information on the internet to deal with the awful but lawful. Employers like police organizations and universities and other professional associations can have professional standards to govern the behavior of their members. Criminal is obviously the domain of the police and the crown, and then the threats to national stability and order, that's where CSIS gets involved. So we get clearer on drawing those distinctions, and we have a whole-of-society program for dealing with those three different levels of threat. This kind of circles right back to to a, a discussion you and I had a couple of weeks ago about responsibilities of our law enforcement agencies, whether it's CSIS, RCMP, whatever the case might be. Uh, you know, the, the the it seems as if the mantra and and the and the, the guardrails that were put in place here are are twentieth century guardrails and not necessarily applicable to what's going on in the world today. Well, that's very true. The twentieth century was basically the century of the state. It was that modern era dominated by United States uh, at the time, the Soviet Republic, China, and so forth. It was a state system with state laws to control and govern state authority. When you think about the Charter of Rights, it constrains what states can do to you, but it doesn't control anybody else, such as the corporations that govern a great deal of our lives. So the world has moved on, and in every place we're catching the laws up to deal with that new network reality, national security, hate crimes, and foreign interference are no different. But with that in mind, uh, we, we tend, I don't know if it's human nature that we want to categorize, we want to label something. Um, so when we see some of these uh, indicators of, of the sort of things that you write about in the book, uh, the upcoming book, uh, we want to attach it to a, a religious group or to, a, as you say, to a state. 
and and that's not really the case anymore. Uh, you know, we talk about some of the uh, red, the, uh, the, the what we consider to be terrorist organizations in this country, or in this world re- these days. It's it's not really associated with states at all. Uh, they can be anywhere, and uh, especially because of the internet. I mean, you know, they, we use we use the phrase "lone wolves," but they're being impacted and 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 influenced by somebody. Well, that's it. They link up. And then this is where we start to get into the global misanthropes, these groups that deliberately fan up that type of conflict when they see it in social media. I mean, we're talking about they get on there and they promote arguments between people uh, on social media uh, and in, in protest space. So what we're getting at here is these days when we think about ideologically motivated, violent radicals, they're not purists anymore. Used to be 40, 50 years ago, maybe you were a Marxist or a fascist or a white supremacist, and you really had your views in one category. Today, we're seeing all kinds of cross-pollination where people take little bits, almost like a salad bar. They take a little bit of far left or far right, a little bit of racism, some misogyny, some sort of uh, global conspiracy uh, theory about economics, and they put it all together in a very sort of uh, personal, bespoke kind of way. And it's all over the place. But you end up with these fellow travelers who have in common the fact that they do not like the modern state and they would like to replace it with something else. It's the something else that they don't agree on. So in other words, those who suggest that they're they're sowing anarchy are are not necessarily anarchists. What they're doing is just they're just trying to dissolve this power structure and, and install another one. That's right. Some are anarchists uh, and they would occasionally turn up at protests with others who are not anarchists, who would actually prefer to replace the state with something that looks like extreme order, where you would have basically local strongman government that works through a system of morals or religion rather than an evidence-based state system. So you have those people who fellow travel for a period of time, anarchists on the one hand, and extreme authoritarians who want a localized feudal system of government, they have a common cause to tear down the state and democracy. But what they want to replace it with is something very different. So in a sense, if they ever achieve their objectives, that's when their argument would begin. Uh, there's an Orwellian twist to this thing that's that, that troubling. But I mean, again, it's it's pointing all the way back again to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, that uh, we've got to be aware of it. We have to re- admit that it's there. And, and as you say, uh, where are the chinks in our armor and, and deal with it through that way, as opposed to in a broad based fashion. Uh, I got to ask you, because we've been talking about the, the, when, when is the book coming out uh, that you've been working on for the last little while? Should be out uh, in the sort of middle point of next year. Excellent. Uh, it's called the freedom convoy transporting the dark policies of the far right across Canada. And uh, according to Susan's column here, and I, I can hardly wait to see the book myself. I mean, that's going to be very insightful, as have our conversations been. Michael, thanks, as always, for this. Really appreciate it. Thanks a million. Well, I guess I've got to finish it now, right? We've been talking. You about better. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah right, so the much. pressure's on. Take care, Mike. Mike Kempel, of course, is Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We just went through Canada Day weekend and had a wonderful time. Most of us did anyway. And we celebrate what is Canadian. We celebrate being Canadian. And part of that Canadian culture, of course, is Canadian music. And uh, just an observation as somebody who's been in this business for a long time, I think we can be damn proud of of Canadian culture and Canadian music. It's grown significantly. 
uh, and matured in so many different ways and so many different genres over the last little while. So somebody at Rolling Stone magazine uh, took it upon themselves to uh, to make a list of the best Canadian artists of all time as, as, as their means of celebrating Canada Day. And uh, as per usual, anytime there's a list of, of, you know, the greatest of or, you know, inductees into a Hall of Fame or whatever, there's always going to be controversy. Uh, and, and Canadian music has been the butt of a few jokes over the years, too. Uh, one of the bands that usually seems to get picked on more than anybody else is Nickelback, of course. But, I mean, uh, they have now sealed their place in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame with the official plaque uh, ceremony just the other day in Calgary. And, uh, well, the, 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 the boys in the band are awfully blown away by that. When you look at those legendary names, it's like, you know, I would have thought that this, this honor might come to us someday 10 years in the future. Chad Kroger, of course, from Nickelback. Well, uh, the good news is you got the plaque, Chad. The bad news is you didn't make this list on Rolling Stone. And uh, don't be so disappointed in that because uh, a lot of very, very talented people didn't make that list. And uh, if there's uh, ever a situation where one publication like Rolling Stone can uh, just essentially piss off everybody, which seems to be what they've done uh, with this list. Uh, joining us to talk about this is our good friend Lou Molinero. Lou, of course, is an instructor at Durham College and uh, the Harris Institute for Music. Uh, Lou, have, happy belated Canada Day. Uh, your first you impressions well, of this list. Well, you know, it's kind of a funny list because uh, when you look at the list, you see a lot of names that should be on that list. But one thing you have to remember is a lot of the contributors that participated in uh, – making this list are really seedsters without being disrespectful. Um, you see, when you look at Rolling Stone, the status of the magazine today, they're more of a tabloid than they were, uh, than they were like a, a real essential um, music uh, information uh, reference uh, material piece as they were back, you know, in the seventies and the eighties where they, they put a lot of time and effort towards breaking ground um, and as well as getting into a lot of deep, uh, stories about music where nowadays uh, I, I think it's all about just trying to be almost kind of like the next level Tiger Beater uh, 16 magazine without being so, um, you know, teeny about it. But uh, at the same point, I think the Rolling Stone, the status of Rolling Stone magazine has really changed over the last few years and they be became a little bit more tabloidy. Um, so I, I think it it's disappointing when you take a look at this list because you certainly uh, notice a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of names that are missing from it. Well, well, and we can get into this debate about, you know, entries uh, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and that's always a big debate every year, too. But what, what I always like to lean towards here is what's the criterion? How did you make this list? Was it was it record sales? Was it popularity? Was it uh, just personal like or dislike? Uh, they don't really qualify exactly what what parameters they were using to set this. And, uh, and you know, my my... One of my first questions was, who are these people? They, they, they clearly don't really know what they're talking about here. So a lot of these people, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and I think the thing is, is with us, we're subjective on the music that we love because it's so much of our, uh, it's, it's a big part of who we are as Canadians. Uh, a lot of these bands that are not listed in this list uh, make up the soundtrack of our lives, you know, uh, growing up. And, and a lot of the, the music and these albums that are so iconic to us um, you know, we we look at it so, in such disrespect when they're not recognized by people that put these lists together that have this ability to stretch out to a lot of readers. 
And you're absolutely right. They really don't state the criteria. I'm pretty sure it's just a bunch of people that just got together saying, hey, let's do something for Canada Day. Uh, what's our favorites? And the funny thing is, is there's a bit of a strategy that they use where they kind of were peripheral for the older music fans, where they listed bands like Rush, Joni Mitchell, um, and the Guess Who. But certain names like Steppenwolf, who, you know, like Born to be Wild is probably one of the most recognized songs, even by today's younger adults. Uh, they, they, they know it. It's a, it's a song that's going to live forever. Th- they were forgotten there. Like Blue Rodeo was another band that was forgotten. And, you know, as these folks uh, listed uh, 50 bands that are important, I, I listed about 50 or 60 bands that they forgot that I thought were very important as well. You know, the Arkells, if they're trying to be kind of seamster like and, you know, be more modern, you know, why were the Arkells forgotten? Uh, it's not a rhetorical question. You have to wonder. Uh, the other one that jumped out at me, the guess who is in, in the list, way down the list, but they should have been higher. Uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive yep. are not on the list. I mean, this and and the th- the thing is, these are not just you know. I, I know you're going to be we're going to be accused of wow, those are just your personal favorites. These are all Canadian acts that made a huge impact on the international music scene. And they didn't just you know, hey, I played a couple of coffee houses and and get a private record label. I mean, these these people were a big deal in this industry uh, for the for a long long time. Uh, Lighthouse is another band that comes to mind. You know, Skip Prokop from Hell Park High School in Hamilton and, and the other guys. I mean, again, these guys, they, I, I still remember we got there for our, our, one of the winter carnivals when I was at Southmount High School. This is going back quite a few years. But they had to break off a, 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 an Oriental tour. They were playing Japan and, and Indonesia or something, and they flew home because they had a commitment to this thing but because they'd become so big. I mean, these guys were superstars. And, and, and you know what I notice? I, if you listen to Sirius Radio, where the Sirius XM that is, um, they play a lot of Canadian music in the 60s and 70s uh, genres and into the 80s. Uh, and they don't need to. It's not regulated to them, but they're playing them because it was good music and they were big hits. Uh, that right. doesn't seem to be reflected here. No, I like I said, I, I truly believe, like, as I looked at the list and I Googled uh, some of the uh, contributors, uh, most of them are either people that are really tapped into what's happening nowadays, uh, musically, currently. And when you're talking about the top 50, uh, I, you know, there, there, there's something that's complementary in including uh, some of the current acts. But I think, you know, when you're going to, you know, list 50 acts in any sort of category, I think you have to do your hor- your homework. And the fact is, is that we really don't know what the criteria is that these contributors had in putting this list together, whether it was like more of a, uh, a personal subjective thing of uh, music that they felt, but like including Leonard Cohen, Rush, the Guess Who, Anne Murray, <clears throat> I thought they had to more so for the fact of just trying to show that there was depth uh, and inclusivity with uh the, with the canadian music but again you know when you really look at it like part of the responsibility of a magazine like rolling stone is to really inform not to just kind of be redundant and telling us things that we already know about drake and the weekend with no disrespect to the to these artists but i think you know this is something different like when you take on a um, a project like this it's a it's an exercise about having the responsibility of teaching your your readers uh, about music that perhaps they don't really know. And that's one of the things that I always look forward to when I see these uh, um, columns and lists. Like, for example, Mojo Magazine, they're a lot more extensive in their... uh, 
and their journalism and 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 anytime they put these lists together uh they list why you know the importance and many times it's um you know it's bands that we are not familiar with you google them you learn a little bit more about them and you connect the dots saying okay this guy from this band went on to write the song for for, you know five band electrical band for example is another one that kind of you know signs was a big hit uh where american bands covered it uh bto you mentioned Taking Care of Business was a song that was used so many times in so many American movies and soundtracks. And the fact that they're just forgotten to me is kind of, it's lazy journalism. And I, I mean, you know, their, their number one artist is Joni Mitchell. I, I, I have no problem with all Joni. She's incredible. And, but I'm wondering if it's just because she was recently in the news being inducted into a, another Raiders Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, that name popped into somebody's head, I guess. Uh, I mean, but their their lack of knowledge, I guess, Lou, is what really bugs me about this. Uh, and it kind of reflects, you know, well, they, these guys are Americans and they really care about Canadians. It's, it's like when you watch Jeopardy and they blow the questions about Canada. And it's the same thing here. Like, you know, one of my favorites, and you and I have talked about this in the past, of course, is, is the band. Uh, Robin Robertson and Levon and everybody else. And they're on the list. I think they're 20th or something like that. Yeah. But, you know, their characterization is, well, they were Bob Dylan's backup band at one time. That's not the whole story. That's not right. what these guys are all about. You know, watch the documentary, When We Were Brothers, and get the stuff. That's, that's like saying uh, the Beatles is that band Paul McCartney played in before he joined Wings. You know, they don't understand their place in music history that a lot of these acts have got and, and earned. And I think this is going to be something that's going to be cyclical and more repetitive. I feel that, like, the way a lot of music journalism is going nowadays, it's not so much about getting extensive into stories, but really being... Um, uh, peripheral and just covering uh, just a small amount of knowledge. Only maybe this is the way things are going. Maybe we're becoming uh, a minority when it comes to uh, being music fans, and this is the trend of um, you know the future to be when it comes to music. It's it's a really interesting thing because right before I got talking to you, I just kind of skimmed through the list again, and every time I you know go through it, I get a little bit more upset and disappointed because I feel you know again they have the power of so many millions of readers, and I know the whole status of Rolling Stone has changed over the years, but still there's a, a dedicated uh, readership to uh, to the magazine, and it's disappointing that they've. Le- left out so many really important Bruce Coburn, Max Webster, yeah. uh, Teenage Head should have been mentioned. T- talking about you know when you talk about the three important um, tri- the, the triangle of punk rock: New York, London, Toronto. Teenage Head represented the Canadian punk rock scene, and they were forgotten. So I, I again I, I put it down to really lazy journalism and people that I think are just very peripheral when they feel they know a lot about music. And unfortunately, you know we're, we're proud as Canadians about our music and our heritage. And so we really want to be properly uh, represented. Well, and when you hear the stories, and I, I know that, you know, this is going to sound like a very typical Canadian thing where we're looking for validation to, to say, yeah, well, this is why we think they're great because they hung out. With, yes. Yeah. The band did hang out with Bob Dylan. Uh, you know, but there's also the Ronnie Hawkins thing is the fact that uh, Robbie Robertson's birthday just yesterday, by the way, yeah. uh, celebrating, I think, one of the great Canadian musicians of all time and his story uh, and, you know, the work that they did and and the influence they had. I mean, you know, when, when he inducted them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Eric Clapton said he quit Cream because he wanted to join the band. They were the happening thing at the time. I mean, this is a, you know, when you talk about an act that actually influences the music scene like these guys did. Uh, and they just, they don't seem to get just that kind of impact. Same thing with Gordon Lightfoot. Um, you know, 
I know there's been a lot of talk about him recently since his passing, uh, but the influence he had on music and and the people he hung out with and the people that thought he was great. I mean, he's he's in that upper echelon with the Bob Dylans and and some of the other great poets of of, of that '60s and '70s genre. Yeah, I, again, it, it just you know when when you see um, the how they just skip through these stories. Uh, especially with iconic bands that are very, very important, not just to Canadian music, to music in general. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's really, really disappointing. Like the guess who should have been ranked a lot higher, I thought. And then when you talk about, so I, I, another thing that I thought was noticed by his absence was Daniel Lanois. When you talk about a guy who not only uh, creates his own music, but has been a producer to so many humongous stars internationally, um, why wasn't he included? Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and it kind of makes me think again that I don't think that these contributors really know Canadian music other than perhaps just being seamsters and just maybe sharing the same sort of uh, playlists that many people do that are very peripheral um, lists representing our Canadian music. So I think we're going to see more about uh, more of these in the future, though. Similar. I hope so. Well, I still remember the time when you two finally played what was Cops Call Scene then, the big arena in downtown Hamilton. Uh, and it, look, obviously the thing sold out in about 25 seconds. Uh, but Bono, you know, between one of the sets, he said, you know, he said, this is great. He says, but this is not our first time in Hamilton. He says, you people don't know that, but we've been here a lot uh, when we go to Daniel's place and go to Daniel's house for dinner. And, uh, uh, and that's the kind of brotherhood that's in the music business. And those are the stories that you'd think a magazine uh like Rolling Stone, that, that's trying to talk about the, the the music culture, would at least pay some homage to. Uh, I completely agree. I think the interesting thing about the music culture nowadays is that um, it just seems that a lot of um, digging into the past doesn't exist anymore. And I think we're you know we're two music fans that are really really dedicated and committed to the music that is important to us. But it's our music that really was the foundation to other music today. That is very, very important. Like when you talk to Max Kerman, uh, he'll be the first one to tell you that it was a lot of the music that we listened to that was really influential to him, you know, into being a musician and a songwriter. Yeah, and and we've got that heritage, and they have it too. And it's uh, I, I, and again, like I say, there's no way you're going to put a list out like this without some controversy uh, about who should be number one and who's on and who's not on, etc., like that. So uh, if yeah, that was I, <laughs> sorry, one last point I want to make. Yeah. Is that I, I, I think that, you know, again, when you're looking at Canadian music, you also have to accept the fact that, uh, you know, there, there, there's a contingency, which is uh, French Canadian music. Like, so leaving out uh, French Canadian artists like Michel Pagliaro, uh, who ha has been an iconic uh, Canadian figure um, musically, uh, you, you also have to recognize and embrace that. And I thought that wasn't, uh, that, that was not in included nor were certain genres like there there wasn't like the metal uh, uh canadian heavy metal really wasn't really well represented in that so again there's a lot of holes in this but i i think as canadians we just kind of look at this and realize that uh it's not a true identification of what's really happening musically i think it's just a a bunch of people that just lazily put this together to uh include it in um into the rolling stone but in a way, it should make us feel stronger and better knowing that we know the truth about our true iconic heroes. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, let's face it, 35 years ago, the list would have been Anne Murray and Gordon Lightfoot. Um, yeah, so maybe, maybe, maybe we're making progress here, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> As always, man, thanks to you, my friend, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, stay cool, sir.
You betcha. Lou Molinaro, of course, uh, uh, from Durham College and uh, the Harris Institute. And, of course, uh, Hamilton people would know him from this St. Hollywood for many, many years, too, down in the North End. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.